Well, if you're up on Facebook, I've gave the little intro there that when you look out at the ungodly and un- injustice, injustice that's in this world, what do you feel? And as we look in this particular chapter, first chapter here in chapter 9, what you feel tells God some things about you. We're going to look at some other things here as well. There's a lot in Ezekiel 9 and 10. And that's, let's start off here with verse 1 of chapter 9. In chapter 8, we ended with a judgment that was pronounced. So here in chapter 9 is carried out. This is all the same vision that he had. It began in chapter 8. It will end at the end of chapter 11. So we're not going to get all of it in here tonight. He was picked up and carried to Jerusalem to start this out. And he will be picked up and carried back to uh, the Babylonian Empire when um, it is finished. In verse 1, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with its battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now when it says those who have charge over the city... And these guys, these six guys, are going in to kill and destroy. Now that generally signals to us what? That generally signals to us the kingdom of Satan. He's out there to kill and destroy. But God certainly has sent his his angels out to do some killing when uh, judgment went on. So there's two ways you can look at that. Uh, these are the particular angels that are given charge over the place and that they're still there despite the depravity of the city. Or you could look at it that Israel, because of their giving themselves over to idolatry, have also given their care over to these six. And that they have been released to go and to kill. I'm not really be able to tell you which way it is. But what we do know is that God didn't feel the need to identify where they came from But he does commission them to go out and to kill. And there is a limitation that is put on. So let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate. Now we're familiar with the upper gate. That was all over chapter 8. This is the north gate. This is the area where the uh, image of jealousy was placed. This is the place where there was the mourning for... Uh, the, the idols, the idolatrous worship. This is where he was at when he dug into the wall. So there's a lot of nasty stuff going on here at the north gate. And this is where they come. So they come into the area where most of the immorality is. At least they're around the house of God. So suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. Each man with his battle axe in his hand, one man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So there are six guys with the battle axes and one apparently with the linen. The six and the one would apparently make seven. Seven is more a godly number. Six is more of a a man's number, judgment number. We see the number associated with Satan's kingdom a lot of times. But anyway, we have them together. They are seven and they enter in through the north gate into the inner court. And this is where they are. They stood beside the bronze altar. That's how you know they're in the inner court. The man in linen. Linen, of course, is a mark of dignity. It's something that the priest wore. Uh, In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 5, we see it described on the messenger of God. He is the one element of mercy in this vision. The, uh, he is shown up, shows up with an inkhorn. Now looking this up, I am told that this is a writing case that usually includes a pen, ink, and a wax writing tablet. So the seven enter the court and stand beside the bronze altar. Verse three. Now the glory of God, <clears throat> the glory, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had a writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Now, I tried to read over a couple of different people's um, 
uh, writings that they had on this. And there are some that feel that the uh, the cherub represents the cherub in the Holy of Holies. And that the presence of God came from the Holy of Holies to the threshold. I read over it and read over it and I don't know, I I tend to think that the the presence of God was on that image that he saw that had descended from the northern area and came to the to the temple area that God had already had uh, departed the area but now was returning to execute judgment. But at any rate, he is uh, he either leaves the cherub that is in the vision of the glory of God that that the uh, prophet sees, or maybe they are right and he comes from the holy of holies. I I just didn't see that personally, but I'll just let you know that that opinion is out there. So the glory of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple and he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side and the Lord said to him go through the midst of the city through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So this man in linen is supposed to go through and put a mark on the foreheads of certain people. Now, in your outline there, instead of putting it up on the screen, we put it there in your outline. If you look at the early Hebrew, that is what this uh, this particular mark would have looked like. The um, the word that is used there that is translated mark is actually the word for the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And I wrote it in there for you. And I've seen it spelled both ways. I spelled it for you T-A-V. I've also seen it spelled T-A-W. I do not claim to be an amateur or expert on Hebrew. But do um, so I just take what other folks have? So I had to take one of those spellings and give it to you. But I'll, we'll let you know that I've seen it spelled both particular ways. And it means a mark. The, the letter actually means a mark. And so he's actually saying put a, uh, a, a tab or a tile, tile on the foreheads. And it's interpreted as meaning a mark. So you'll see it in your, in your Bibles as translated mark. But he could actually just be saying put this letter on their forehead. So if you look at the early Hebrew, it looks like a cross. If you look at the middle Hebrew, it becomes more slanted. If you look at modern Hebrew, it doesn't look like this at all. <laughs> it's completely different. But uh, this is Ezekiel. And um, I don't know which one to tell you that it is. Because I've actually seen it, it described... Uh, that he wrote it as an early Hebrew, so it would have been a straight up and down cross, and other ones who put it as a slanted one, that he's more middle Hebrew. And I, and I have no idea which it is, but either one you can see that it does have the appearance of a cross, which of course a lot of folks see a lot of prophetic things about that. They put the mark of the cross on their forehead, and these are the ones that were marked and protected. Uh, I don't put that past my God at all. I'm Absolutely, absolutely positive Ezekiel had absolutely no idea <laughs> that this was representing anything future unless God also shared that with him. He just didn't write it. But he just tells you what God said. And of course, we know that later on down the line, this is uh, this was going to be there. So he went out and he put this mark on people, certain people. Now, he only put the mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. He does not put this mark on the forehead of those who confess that, Je- that, uh, that Jehovah is God. He does not put this on the forehead of those who still show up at the temple to worship. Worship the Creator, God. That's not what the qualifications are. I'm not saying that there are people who do that. I'm saying if there are people who do that, that's not the qualifications to get the mark. The only qualification to get this mark is if you see these abominations going on that are described in chapter 8, if you see these abominations going on with the idolatrous worship going on in the courts of the temple and it caused you grief, you were sad, you were upset, you would see that and every time you see that it would just move you, it moved your emotions, you felt something when you saw that. God says, those are the people you mark. Because I am such a part of their life that when they see this, it hurts them. It grieves them. See, when we look around at all the things that are going on in this world, it should grieve us. 
it should have a mark. Don't ever become to the point where well, that's just the way the world is going. Don't ever get soft like that. Because here we see in this that God is looking for those people that get bothered because God is not being honored. When you see it, it should move you on the inside just as it did here. And these are the only ones that He set aside to get this mark. The men who would sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Uh, we don't want to go there, but in Amos chapter 6, verse 6, you'll see that uh, he was exhorting the people because they were not moved by the things that were going on. So since people in the city received this mark, obviously there must be some people in the city that are still righteous. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had much of a job to do at all. He could have just stayed put. But he went, and he went before these six guys, so before they could go out and kill anybody, they had to be passed over by this guy with the mark. Now we see this whole thing with the mark many times in Scripture. We saw it way back in the book of Exodus where they had to mark the, the houses. And if you had, if you put on that mark, that was a mark of, that was you being submissive to the will of God. If you put that mark on your uh, threshold, on your door, then um, you were spared. You'd be passed over. Now this one, they can't put the mark on themselves. This uh, man in linen, has to go out there and do it. And so he'll go out there and he'll put this this mark, either a slanted uh, looking T or a straight up and down T that he would put on their on their head. I doubt anybody would see it except for the six that are, are going through. So this is probably some kind of a spiritual mark that they would not see. And of course, we're all very familiar with the mark in the book of Revelation that they would get on their foreheads or on their hand and uh, God says, don't take it. He warns them very sternly, do not take it because uh, you're not going to be marked. And God did his own marking in the, in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> so he says here, let's read this again. To the others, he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare nor have pity. Now that right there would seem to indicate that these messages six are not from the kingdom of, of Satan. Because why would the kingdom of Satan have pity? Why would he be moved with any kind of compassion at all? Why would he want to spare them? So that would seem to indicate that they are not of Satan's kingdom, but these are ones that are of God's. He says, Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Did anybody see the question I put up? What's the difference between mercy and pity? Now God, to start this chapter off with, he ex- in chapter 8, He executed judgment. This is the judgment that's coming. But He starts this chapter off with an act of mercy. And so He's got seven guys, six of them are going to execute judgment, and one of them is going to execute mercy. That's His whole responsibility is to ex- execute mercy. The man in linen, all He does, does not kill anybody. All He does is mark the ones for mercy. And so He must know which ones have been saddened, which ones have had a, have been affected by all this that goes on at the temple. And so he put the, the mark on there. But to the rest of them, he says, don't let your eyes spare them. Don't look on them and say, oh, but this one looks so innocent. This one looks so, I don't know if I want to I want to do this. He says, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young. Maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. These are the 25 elders that were there. Remember that probably represented the priesthood. 24 branches of the priesthood plus the high priest would be 25. And they were all there. He said, you start with them. They're in the inner court. These 25 were in the inner court. And he says, I want you to start right there. Start slaying them. And uh, they go on through and they, they cut them down. I'm sure that none of them got a mark. I can't see any, any qualifications they would have had for a, for a mark. So they probably all died when this guy is, uh, these guys are going through. But you look at this and you say, oh, but the children. Why are we killing the children? Well, the children of Israel killed their own kids. They put their own kids on the sacrifice for the, for the idols. And you remember the New Testament says the children are sanctified by the parents. How many of these children have been led into false worship? by their parents. It's imperative 
that we as parents um, look out after our, our kids. Because you, you see some of the things that are going on, some of the attitudes that are in the kids. Well, those attitudes are in the parents. And they've just passed them on. And so even though we look at them and say they're innocent, the parents have instilled this idolatrous worship into them. Now, if there's anything good in them, I'm sure that God will will uh, spur them up in heaven. And we don't have to get into all that. God is certainly fair. But uh, right here, he says, nope. If they don't have that mark, they don't get spared. But he, he, he assures them, do not let your eye spare nor have pity. So I put this in your outline for you. Mercy, this is what I, as I was meditating on this, this is what came to me about it. Mercy is merely pity if it doesn't have an end point of justice. Mercy is merely pity if it doesn't have an end point of justice. See, God's mercy is mercy because it has an end point of justice. This is the judgment that will come. If it doesn't have the judgment, it's just merely pity. I just pity you. I just feel sorry for you. But mercy sees the coming judgment and stays off the coming judgment. But at a point, that judgment has to be released through or it's not mercy. Does that make sense? You're going to see this in the rest of this chapter. We'll show it to you as we get on through here. So all suffering isn't punishment. I put that in here for this reason. The people who received the mark, did they suffer in the city? More than likely, didn't they? They more than likely suffered the... uh, famine and the pestilence and the things that came on there, but they did not suffer the punishment. The rest of the people were punished, probably sent to hell, but they were not punished. Christians are not always spared the suffering, but they are spared the punishment. In the book of Revelation, you have the seven churches. And in those seven churches, some are being promised, some of you are going to die. But so don't worry about it. The glory that's coming is going to be great. See, they suffered, but they didn't come into the punishment. It's okay for us to suffer, but just know on the other side, it's going to be good. All right. So the killing began with the elders, those who led the people or lead the people into sin. See, there is a greater judgment that comes on those who lead others into sin than on those who just are merely led into sin. And it starts there with those guys. Here verse 8. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. And I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. So he sees this, he sees this in the vision. Understand, this hasn't gone on yet. This is just something he's seeing that's coming. And so he's watching the guy, the first guy, the linen guy, go out and mark some people. And then he watches the other six and they got this battle axe and they just whack. And they're just whacking all these people and all these folks are, are, I mean, when you kill with a battle axe, I mean, it's gory. And he's watching this. He's watching his, his, uh, his, his own people in his beloved city just being battle axed. And it moves him. And he goes to God and he says, Ah, oh God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? He's, he's moved by this. He's sad. What I want you to see though is when God answers him, he is moved with pity, but not mercy. God is moved with mercy which has an end point of judgment. He is moved right now by pity. It does not have that end point of judgment. He does not have the heart of God. Can you imagine that? Ezekiel. I mean, this guy is up there as far as prophets are concerned. But right now, 
He does not have the heart of God. Know this, no matter how anointed you get or how much you walk in the things of God, you can still forsake the heart of God being moved by pity. We have to be careful. Now, God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't uh, you know, pronounce any kind of judgment upon him for that. But he lets him know, look, this is me. And I am executing this judgment. I told you it was coming. And he knows. He's the one who said it was coming. But it's, it moved him in, in this way. And, but that's not the heart of God. So he goes, he says, And he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. We're not just saying it's great. It's exceedingly great. And the land is full of bloodshed. And the city is full of perversity. For they say the Lord has forsaken a land and the Lord does not see. Neither of these things are true, but they are saying it. And by the fact that many people have said it, many people have accepted it. We have to be careful. Though the world may say many things about our God, about churches, about people of God. And sometimes we can adopt their viewpoint. But just because the world says it, just because Christians who call themselves Christians, say it, does not mean that it is true. We've got to take everything back to the Word of God because we are required to make sure that our beliefs are true. But the land is full of bloodshed, the city full of perversity. I pulled this out of the New King, the, the, new, the new Century Version. And it reads this way. Um... The land is filled with people who murder and the city is full of people who are not fair. Sometimes we read it in the, in the other way and it's, we just kind of lose it. That it's meaning. But uh, it's full of bloodshed and it's full of people who are not fair. Now, I've meditated on that translation for a little bit. You know what? I tell you. Many times, not just in our society, you know, it's easy to to pick on that, but I think all through history. I, lo- I love history. I love studying some things in history. But I'll tell you, just about every single great nation, great empire, has fallen into a place of perversity that caused them to be unfair. There was there was no there was nothing fair about it, and they saw they didn't see any problem with it. We have to be careful that we don't pull this kind of a of a feeling into ourselves because it is it is there look at some of the motivations that people have anymore for murder and don't think it's any different from how it was before how it was in Ezekiel's day how it was in in uh, Cain's day how it was in any of the days of the Old Testament any of the days of the New Testament how it was with the Pharisees who were ready to murder Lazarus this is just uh, it, it's just constant I think Ethel was talking about that on Sunday. Uh, this this murderous thing, it's, it's all through the time because we have become so absorbed in what we think is right that anyone who comes against it, we must eliminate. We must kill them. And that's the motivation for it. How many times does the Pharisees want to kill somebody? Because they're in their way. Because they're exposing something that's that's uh, just not right. That's just that's just kill them. It's got religious leaders are are pulled into that. And this is what Ezekiel is dealing with. He's dealing with people that are so caught up with selfish motivations, so caught up with whatever it is they see religiously, that they're ready to kill people who stand in their way. And it's not just in this day. King Ahab. Remember some of the stories around them and the people they wanted to kill because they stood in their way of uh, idolatry. And when Elijah stood in the way, what did they want to do with him? Well, let's kill him too. What did they do with the other prophets that were slain? They, they stood in the way, so they killed them. Elijah spoke about all those who were, who were killed. Yeah, we have to, we have to be watchful of this. So one of the things is the motivations for murder. And anymore, it just seems like people don't, they don't need a reason. You're just in my way. And we just kill you. We don't even think about it. Just just end that life. That's amazing. But then you look at the parts here where it says uh, that they, they weren't fair. Well, it is amazing to me how much weak in, in the area of fairness 
<clears throat> that we can look at one situation and decide that it's fair based on that person's race, based on that person's sexual orientation, based on that person's politics, based on that person's party that they associate with, whatever it is, if we don't identify with that particular thing, what we see as fair for one is not fair for another. We'll, we'll cry injustice, injustice when it happens to this person because I identify with them for whatever reason we identify. But the same thing can happen to somebody else and we say, oh, I'll go get them. I, I can think of so many examples, but about the, the I, don't, I don't want to really get into a whole, whole lot. I think the guy's name was Manafort. Anybody remember the, the thing that went on with Manafort? What was really astounding to me about him was that he was primarily, if I'm thinking, if I'm saying the right name anyway, because uh, there was a couple of people that were involved in that, but if I'm thinking the right guy, he was actually involved in the Obama administration far more than he was the Trump administration. Uh, he was in there a lot longer. Um, and he was only involved with the Trump administration for a few months. But they came after him hard. And if it's a story, if I'm saying the right name, this is the guy that they actually, uh, he was cooperating with them and, and giving them testimony and so forth. And they showed up at his house about 5 a.m. in the morning, stormed the door. His family's all inside. His kids are all inside. Stormed the door for a man who was cooperating with them with, uh, I don't know how many, 20, 30 agents all with flashing lights all outside to arrest him and take him in. Because suddenly he was no longer on one side, he was on another. And the things that were done to him were just, uh, it was, it was, it was not right. And I don't, I don't know the guy. I don't know what his view, I know that he was on two administrations who were on total, totally different opposite ends to each other. I don't know what his, 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 uh, political beliefs were. Don't matter. You see, if we, we gotta look at these things and say, this is not fair, this is not right. But if it happens, not, and I'm not saying anybody here, but you know, some people, they see that happen if, well, he deserved it. Why? Or well, he shouldn't have had that happen. Simply because I don't associate with them or I do associate with them. This is just one example. I could list so many, so many that have gone on over the, over the years I follow politics. And not just in politics, but you can look at in other, other areas as well. And it's, we, things aren't fair. You see, the, the justice things are get perverted. And I want you to know this about it. God is disgusted by it. He does not care. He's told us in the New Testament how many times he does not care about race. He does not care about ethnicity. He doesn't care about skin color. He doesn't care about Greek. He doesn't care about whatever, whatever we would think, whatever association we can think. He doesn't care about it. He looks at, are you associated with the truth? Or are you associated with a lie? And that's all that matters. But you see, these are the two things that are being brought up here. One is their reason for murder because it shows their selfishness and their willingness to end someone's life because they don't line up with their cause or they get in the way of what they want to do. And they're not fair. They'll make up one rule for, for one group of people and another rule for another group of people. And that is never right. And it ought to upset us no matter who it is it's being done to. If we have the heart of God. Well, what we had here was we had some people who saw these things going on and were upset. And God says, mark them. They saw these things. They saw the worship of, of idols in the courts of God. They saw people giving themselves over to idolatrous worship instead of to God. And it caused them to grieve. And these are the ones that got the mark. So the sin of the people of Israel and Judah is very great. This is from the New Century Version. The land is filled with people who murder and the city is full of people who are not fair. The people say the Lord has left the land and the Lord does not see. The heart of God is always fair. If we ever pull up something that is not fair, we are not taking on the heart of God. See, sometimes there's some things with people I don't, I don't even like, you don't even like. But we look on that and say, you know what? That's not right what they're doing to that person. See, I can see, I can step through, I can look at the fairness of something regardless of how I associate with them. And we have to be, we have to make sure that we stay on that side. 
Whether I, if I see an injustice done to someone who is my skin color or not my skin color, who is my, and I don't even know what my nationality is. I, people send away and get the test done. And I, I only found out this, I only found out this year I have some Irish blood in me. I had no idea. I didn't get any tests done. My mom just told me that. I always thought we were German Catholic and I found out, no, my dad's side was Irish Catholic. I said, what? <laughs> I got Irish blood in me? I got a name like Hecht and I got Irish blood in me? I had no idea. Doesn't make me want to go to Ireland anymore. My wife has a desire to go out there to, to see that thing. I said, hey, I can go there. Didn't make me change my mind anymore because there might be some... I, don't, I really don't care. I mean, some people, they send away and they get their DNA. They want to know. That's fine. You can know. I, I, I don't care about it. And I'm not going to side with somebody because I, I've got... I'm sure i got more mixed blood in me than probably most people do. Because I know my... My, I think my mom's side, I think she said they're European or they came over from some kind of thing like that. And apparently uh, dad had German and Irish all mixed in there. And who knows what else was all mixed in. I have no idea. But it doesn't matter because we, we're not here to identify with people because of what they look like or where they came from. We're here to identify with the truth. Always got to identify with the truth. And that's what God wants. He wants his people to identify with the truth and not with anything else. The world will constantly put pressure on us to identify in a different way. Don't give in to that pressure. Stay with the truth of God. You will have people, when you hold on to a truth and stand with the truth, you'll have people get upset with you. you have close relatives who will get upset with you. Jesus had people who were close relatives of his got upset with him because he stuck with the truth. If it happened to him, it will happen to you. Don't worry about it. You're in good company. Alright, let's keep going, keep going on here. Verse 10. And as for me also, my eye will not neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. See, God's not in the area of pity. He'll be in the area of mercy. Mercy you qualify for. Pity you just feel sorry for them. But mercy, they do something. They repent. They, they do something that God tells you, if you do this, there's, there's something that they have done that causes mercy to step in. But God has said, there is no mercy on this one. This judgment is coming. And he says, don't have pity, because pity is different from mercy. He says, don't have pity. He said, I'm not having pity on them. All right, let's, let's move on with this. He said... Uh, where was that verse there? The New Century Version said this, I will bring their evil back on their own heads. You see, what he is bringing back here is the evil that they have done. The murderous deeds, the unfairness, all this all this evil that they've done. He says, I'm bringing it all back on them. They have qualified themselves for these by these acts that they've done. So the very evil that they have done, I am now bringing back upon them. And it's going to come out and it's going to going to come down upon them. I think I already gave you this blank, but it's coming up on my thing. Hurry. The heart that Ezekiel has embraced here is not God's heart. He is, I think this is amazing. He is caught up in a vision. He is seeing something. He is in the presence of God. He is seeing this and he does not have the heart of God. He has grabbed hold of pity. <laughs> that amazes me that you can that you can do that. But we've seen it in other places too. This is not the only place. I, I have this note there. God may have given Ezekiel a hard head. Remember that verse of Scripture? May have given him a hard head, but his heart was not affected, it seems. <laughs> he, he has that pity that comes, right, comes into him. Verse 11. Just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So he marked all the people that were there. Um, either he works really fast or there weren't that many. <laughs> I don't know which one it is. But um, he's back and he's done. And it seemed to be important that we, were, we find that out, that he was done. So verse 1 of chapter 10. And I looked and there in the firmament there was above the head of the cherubim there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance and likeness of a throne. 
And he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub and fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now you don't need a whole lot of uh, uh, schooling in interpretation of prophetic uh, vision to understand what is happening here, do you? <laughs> he is going into the presence of God to get some coals and throw them on the city, which would represent judgment. This is going to be judgment. Now, I think I've made this note. If I didn't put it in your outline, I meant to. But the coals of fire do not always represent judgment. But they do always represent purification. Remember when Isaiah was called and he said, I am a man of unclean lips. And the angel took a coal off the offer and placed it on his lips. And immediately, he was clean. Well, the coal was used to purify something that was unclean. But here this whole city is unclean and these coals of fire are being cast upon the city. The city will burn. People will die. Judgment is coming down. What is interesting on this is the very person who carried out the mercy, carried out the judgment. It is the exact same one, the man in linen. And in this vision, God wants you to know that the same one who poured the mercy out, the only bit of mercy that was done was carried out by this man. But he's also the one who executed the judgment. This is the fourth time that Ezekiel has mentioned the throne of God. It seems John was very captivated by the, the throne of God in Revelation and it is equally as captivating for Ezekiel as he sees it. I can imagine if any of us saw the throne of God, it would be just as captivating for us. <laughs> we would be mentioning it all the time in anything that we are writing down. But here the man in linen is given his second commission, the coals. I don't think I put this in your outline, but you can write this down if you want to. True justice does not despise mercy. True justice does not despise mercy, nor does true mercy despise judgment. If you want to find out if you're walking in pity or if you're walking in mercy, do you despise the judgment of God when it comes? <clears throat> now this one who is faithful in administering the mercy has no reluctance when he is asked to administer the chastisement or the judgment. See, mercy must not despise the demands of justice or else it will cease to be mercy. It will be nothing more than pity. Pity has no power. Mercy has power. <clears throat> In verse 3, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple. So if you remember that image we had up there with the, the uh, temple, you had the north gate, then the east gate over on the side, and then there's the south gate. It's over by the south gate right now. So the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. How often is the Lord's glory associated with a cloud in the Bible? It is quite often. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of the Almighty God when He speaks. Then it happened when He commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. Then He went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out His hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen who took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have the form of the man's hand under their wings." So when the cherubim went up, his, his wing, you saw his wings go up, but underneath those wings there were what seemed to be man's hands, and that's what he used to grab the coals, and he passed them down. So this, this man in linen, as soon as he's given the command, he just goes up, and he waits. He doesn't go in there and just grab the stuff, he waits. And the cherubim go and they get it, and they bring it to him, and he immediately goes out and he does what God said to do. Verse 9. 
And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherub, and one wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of beryl stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went, and their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels, and the four and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. Doesn't that sound weird? Now, as soon as you see two words like that, I'm sure most of you will do just like I did and said, what in the world are those two words doing in there? And so I looked them both up and they are completely different words. Not even close in the, in the alphabet. Um, and so I did t- I looked them up. I wanted to try and get a little bit more of a of a study on, on this, but wasn't able to, to do as much on that. <clears throat> the first means a wheel. But the second is translated whirling wheel in New Century Version and some translations put it in as a chariot throne. A much more involved than wheel. I don't know why the New King James puts it in there wheel and wheel. Or wheels and wheel. It, it, it makes no sense to me because when I looked up this word, there's just absolutely no reason to translate that particular word wheel. But that's what they did. And it sure causes for all kinds of confusion if you're just reading that through. But uh, whenever you see two things like that, that always look them up. Do the best that you, that you can with it. You don't have to have any kind of Hebrew knowledge. I don't have a whole lot of Hebrew knowledge. And I was able to, real quick, be able to, to, to check them out and to see. And so what we're looking at is he is basically describing the exact same vision he saw in chapter 1. Almost to a T. There's one difference in here we're going to be... One major difference, anyway, we're going to be talking about just a little bit as we, as we get to it. We haven't got to it yet. But, um, he sees again this, this, and he feels the need to describe it just as he did before. I think it's amazing. I, I gotta describe this again. This thing must be so awe-inspiring that he's gonna repeat himself and describe it all again. But he makes one change. Where do we leave off at? Verse 13. Verse 14. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. Did you catch the change? The first was the face of a cherub. That is not how he described it before. He described the first face as the face of an ox. And he changed it. But later on, he's going to say in uh, verse 22, I'll just skip on down. And the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chabar. All right. So, if he says in verse 22 that the likeness of their faces is the same as it was in the first vision, why does he call the face of the first a cherub instead of the face of an ox? There is absolutely no explanation given anywhere. He just changed it. Now, if you get into some of the rabbis and some of their teachings that they do on this, and, you know, this, they pass on things from, from way, way back. I don't know how back this goes or where this came from or what origin, where, uh, where it originated from. But the change, according to the rabbis, was done on permission from Ezekiel because he did not like to describe the first face as an ox because of the golden calf. I have no other explanation. <laughs> I know from verse 22 that's exactly the same thing as what he saw in, in uh, chapter 1. But he sure uses a very different description on the first face. Alright, let's go on. And the cherubim were were lifted up and there was a living creature I saw by the river Chabar. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still and when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold. So end of verse 17, that's basically the same description we had before. There really wasn't too much difference in it (coughs) except for that face. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. 
And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the Lord, the glory of God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chabar and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each four wings and the likeness of the hands of man was under their wings and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chabar. Their appearance and their persons they each went straight forward. Now this vision is not done yet. We still have a whole other chapter that he is going to, to get into before he is taken, taken back and put back to where he, where he started. But it would seem that now as I look at this and as I picture it, it might be different from, from some. It's not different from others and, um, it seems to be two different ways of looking at it. So some see the Spirit of God still in the temple and then lifting up and leaving here. I see it more as coming from the north and following the, uh, the, the scent, so to speak, of um, all the atrocities that they're doing because all that is leaking out of the north gate and it follows from the north and comes right on down there. And so when God is going to execute judgment, He brings His presence. And the very presence of God is there while the judgment is being executed. He is watching over to make sure that the judgment is done the way he wants it to be done. And that no one is going to have pity. But that justice will occur. And after it's all poured out, he lifts his spirit off of the place and departs. Which is probably the worst judgment of all. I think... When people get to hell, I've heard people say, well, all my friends are going to be down there, but the spirit of, the presence of God will be absent. They don't know what it's like that here in this earth they are around the presence of God. But there that will be absent. Oh, the I cannot imagine. I sure don't want to find out what that is. But we've got three chapters so far on this vision, 8, 9, and 10. And we can see from this that there is nothing good about false religions. Nothing good. The world will try and tell us that all religions have something to offer. God's view is there is nothing good from false religions. They are utterly detestable to God and they should be to us as well. And we should never mix anything into the worship of God. Toleration may have become the greatest virtue of our own modern age and it certainly was in the age of Ezekiel and many other ages before but this is not one of God's attributes. He does not tolerate. He doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't tolerate idolatry. And neither should we. One of the biggest things we can take from this, I think more so than any other chapter in the Word of God that I have seen, do not leave the mercy of God for mere human pity. Human pity has no power. But the mercy of God does. But the mercy of God will embrace the judgment of God. The pity, the human pity will not. And that certainly helps us understand the world's way of looking at God. How can God do that? Because they haven't embraced mercy. They've only embraced pity. They cannot comprehend the judgment of God. If we have a hard time understanding the judgment of God, how God can pour out judgment on this world, how God could pour out the judgment that He speaks about here in Ezekiel, how God could pour out any of the judgments that He speaks about in the Word of God. If we have a hard time embracing the judgment of God, it's because we have not embraced the mercy of God. The more that we get hold of the mercy of God, the more we understand the mercy of God, the more we will be immune to the effects of pity. See, pity will get us to do things that mercy won't. And as we see with Ezekiel, he's in the presence of God and human pity grabbed hold of him. Now, God didn't, didn't rebuke him or, or uh, throw any judgment his way. He understands. But he's telling you, I'm not going to have pity. I'll have mercy on those I have mercy on. But when judgment comes, judgment comes. And he's telling them here, judgment is coming. This is, this is what's happening. And so what you have in this is a guy playing with time again. 
He is taking Ezekiel in a vision forward in time just like he took John. Letting him see the outpouring of judgment and then bringing him back to his current time. He is going to see the outpouring of judgment before it ever happens. To reiterate with him, this is a done deal. It is already occurred. I'm letting you see it. Just as John saw the outpouring of God's judgment in the tribulation, Ezekiel is seeing this as well. Now, Ezekiel's judgment is only a few years off. John's was a lot more. <laughs> he had to go further in time to, to go forward than Ezekiel does. But this is the exact same thing that he did with John. He took him forward to see what was inevitably coming. It has been said. God operated in mercy, but He will not operate in pity. God will judge the world. We've got to make sure that we stay clear of it. Thank God He leads us. Thank God He directs us. When the world tries to get hold of us, He'll tell us in your spirit, you're getting some of the world on you. Oh yeah, I yeah. am. need to get rid of that. Thank God He does that. Thank God that He does it for me. Steve, watch out. Get some of the world in there. Yep, yep, I see that. And we, we can shed it and get it out. But we sure don't want to have that, that going on. Israel didn't do it. Israel knew they were getting the world in and embraced it. And when their prophets came and warned them, they killed them. They abused them, threw them in prison. They wouldn't, they wouldn't hear them. God doesn't just leave you out there. His mercy sends messages, sends messengers. Hey, get out of there. God's mercy is here for you. But if we keep refusing the mercy, then we qualify ourselves for judgment. And it will come. Father, I thank you that you show us in your word your great mercy, but you also show us that judgment will come if people don't heed it. I thank you that we have heard your message and we have heeded it and avoided the judgment. I thank you for your mercy that you showed to us. It wasn't pity. It was mercy. Mercy we qualify for. Pity is just given because people feel sorry for you. Father, I thank you that you love us. You love us greatly. And if we do start to fall off or start to embrace some of the world into our life, you let your word come alive to us to tell us. You send servants along our path to let us know that we can shed what we've picked up and embrace the word of God. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.